Welcome to the Spectral Phenomena Podcast, your source for all things offbeat, strange, unexplained, and paranormal. Here are your hosts, Ken Sanner and Mustafa Sadiq. Alma Mater, National Autonomous University of Mexico. Do we stop recording? We just started. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> PhD at Cardiff University, occupation, theoretical and computational physicist, known for the Alcubierre warp drive. Institutions, Max Planck Institute for Gravitational Physics, National Autonomous University of Mexico. Thesis, investigations in numerical relativity. Whoa. Interesting. Well, welcome back to Spectral Phenomena, everybody, from a cabin deep in the woods in central Maryland. We are here with a very special topic, something a little bit different. And I'm going to let Moose kind of uh, run the show here. It's a uh, topic oh, near and dear to his heart. Don't do that. Well, I want, I want you to introduce it at least. All right. So uh, the Alcubierre drive, which I am probably mispronouncing, and this is uh, in, from the deep field research of wikipedia.org, is a speculative warp drive idea based on a solution of Einstein's field equations in general relativity as proposed by theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre, who we would love to have on the show, <laughs> in, in the rare instance that you're listening to this, sir. During his PhD study at the University of Wales, I bet we could email him. We should. I mean, we could just look up university wherever he's at right now and be like, hey, man, we're, we're definitely scientists. Right. Here, here's our other podcast that's like solid medical stuff, <laughs> so we're not weird. I mean, he probably doesn't get a lot of uh, requests for interviews. You, you know? don't think so? Not from this kind of podcast. Probably not. Season, I mean, Avi Loeb does, but... Uh, oh, but he kind of feeds into He it. does. I have his book. I haven't read it yet. Do you want to say who he is? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a Harvard uh, astronomer who is uh, part of the Galileo Project, or the lead of the Galileo Project. Mm-hmm. And basically, he kind of came to fame when there was an object pa- passing through our solar system, which was called the... Oh, it's a Hawaiian name. Oh, yes. Hold on. Keep talking. I'll look it up. Yeah. But basically, it was a a flat object passing through the solar system, and it was speculated that this object could have actually been part of or an interstellar craft. Oumuamua. Yeah, that's it. Did I say it right? I don't know. Yeah, I I think so. Okay, good. So, so the idea is that this thing could have been uh, almost like a solar sail, or not almost like it could have been a solar sail. So, if you're not familiar with that, it's basically a theory that you can use a light material that picks up energy from the sun's waves and can be propelled through solar energy to travel through space. So, it's, it's kind of like a, a free energy version of space travel. So, it's a pretty cool concept. And basically, Dr. Loeb was an advocate that this is a possibility of what this could be. And he has since kind of gotten involved in the UFO community and has a, a lot of fame in the in the community right now. So, he's a, a proponent that we may not be alone. The, what I really liked about him, and I actually have a cool article up from the New Yorker. Um, it was a Q&A with uh, uh, Dr. Loeb? Lo- 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 I think it's Loeb. Lo- I could okay. be wrong. By Isaac Schottner. That was written January 16th, 2019. Um, What I found interesting about Dr. Loeb was um, when I was listening to uh, one of the podcasts he was on, he is a self-skeptic. And he's really rooted in his own, you know, 
professional desire to be a scientist first, you know, finding mm-hmm. empirical data and like uh, being very self-critical of his own the uh, hypothesis. He uh, he says that why am I getting shut down for having merely a a hypothesis that I uh, you know uh, that we I've, and I'm obviously not quoting him, but basically he says I have a little bit of evidence that says that this could be a thing, and. I remember him saying that basically what really got him passionate about it is why that he got shut down by someone called, you know, people and respected members of, excuse me, his community who, if you're a true scientist, any, any, any outcome or any possibility that has some sort of empirical evidence to back it up should be entertained. And the fact that they weren't entertaining it really concerned him. Um, so I found that to be very interesting. Um, uh, I'm just going to read a little bit here. So October 19th, 2017, astro- astronomers at the University of Hawaii spotted a strange object traveling through our solar system, when, uh, when they, which they later described as a red and extremely elongated asteroid. It was the first interstellar object to be detected within our solar system, which is also interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I imagine that at all times we had like shit coming in and out, and we could track it, but I guess not. Um, the scientists named it Umuamua, the Hawaiian word for a scout or messenger. The following October, Avi Loeb, the chair of Harvard's astronomy department, uh, co- and that's a big deal, by the way. It's mm-hmm. not like this is like, I mean, nothing against the local Towson University, which is my alma mater. I'm just saying, the chair of Harvard's astronomy, this isn't like... I mean, this. I feel like that's the equivalent of like the Johns Hopkins cardiology department. It's not right. just some dude that they picked up on the side of the street and on in Baltimore Street, right? right. It's, it's like a legit dude. Covered a paper with a Harvard postdoctoral fellow, Schmuel 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 Bailey. I'm not making that up. That's S H M U L M U E L. The that examined Umumua's peculiar acceleration and suggested that the object may be a fully operational probe sent intentionally to Earth's vicinity by an alien civilization. But yeah, so. Why is that important for us? Well, today we are talking about the Albuquerque drive. That's also a potential engine, similar to what we were talking about with the solar sail. This Albuquerque drive is uh, is a drive that would allow a spacecraft to reach apparent faster than light travel if a configurable energy density field lower than that of vacuum could be created. Uh, that is negative mass. Now, first and foremost, uh, Ken, are you a physicist? You know, it's funny <laughs> you mention that because I am absolutely not. I am also not a physicist. Uh, so uh, don't, don't, uh, we're just two idiots talking about this thing. So don't uh, crucify us, people. But yeah, so from, again, the illustrious source of Wikipedia.org, rather than exceeding the speed of light within a local reference frame, a spacecraft could traverse distances by contracting space in front of it and expanding space behind it resulting in effective faster-than-light travel. Objects cannot accelerate to the speed of light within normal space-time. Instead, the Alcubierre drive uh, excuse me, the Alcubierre drive shifts space around an object so that the object would arrive at its destination more quickly than light would in normal space without breaking any physical laws. I think that's the most important thing here. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of crap that we talk about in, uh, well, not we, but generally people that want to believe ufos really really bad will like bridge you know bridge gaps and a lot of the stuff is just not realistic right let's be real we we live in a physical universe that has physical laws and things have to kind of hopefully if we're talking about things that are within our dimension which is a whole another conversation have to follow our laws of physics so it's really interesting to me that when i saw this i said oh wow this is something that could actually work that has been uh proposed by someone way smarter than me and has been uh you know discussed by way way more you know uh 
intelligent people that are way more versed in physics than I am. Uh, so I found it to be pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it really is very interesting. You know, and I, I believe if memory serves, uh, one of the limitations with it is the energy source, but it's proposed, yes. you know, to use dark matter or dark energy to fuel it. However, even then, they believe that the amount of dark matter or dark energy it would use is uh, so excessive that it would be, you know, basically not possible. That said, we don't know what we don't know, to uh, steal a quote from you, Moose, that, that you're so fond of. There's still a lot about the universe we don't understand. We don't know a lot about dark energy or dark matter. We don't know a lot about what's out there. Something like, you know, the the vast majority of matter in the universe is believed to be dark matter. So we just don't know. It's 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 all very interesting. Uh, it's something that we have to kind of humble ourselves, I think, and look at if this is even theoretically possible. Somebody somewhere may have figured this out, uh, you know, maybe not on this planet, but, you know, maybe in a hundred years, a thousand years, we will be able to figure out how to do something like this. And to be clear, dark energy isn't like some weird woo-woo thing that like UFOologists or just like paranormal people made up right now. This is a real physical thing. Uh, let's see here. The first observational evidence for its existence came from measurements of supernovas, which showed that the universe does not expand at a constant rate. Rather, the universe's expansion is, is accelerating. Understanding the universe's evolution requires knowledge of its starting conditions and composition. Before these observations, scientists thought that all forms of matter and energy in the uni universe would only cause the expansion to slow down over time. Measurements of the cosmic microwave background suggest that's the CMB that we hear a lot about anyway, suggest the universe began in a hot Big Bang from which general relativity explains its evolution and the subsequent large-scale motions. Without introducing a new form of energy, there was no way to explain how scientists could measure an accelerating universe. Since the 1990s, dark energy has been the most accepted premise to account uh, for the accelerated expansion. As of 2021, there are active areas of cosmology research to understand the fundamental nature of dark energy. So, like I said, not like random, you know, woo-woo crap. Right. What's interesting is, uh, hold on, let me just... <laughs> Dark energy, talking about moving uh, space-time through a, yeah. a bubble and pulling, it, oh, contracting and energy in front requirements. of you. And the energy, yeah, requirements. energy requirements, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, kind of going, and I, I feel like we brought him up again. However, um, geez, what's the guy? Bob Lazar. Yeah. You know, going back to his discussions of, uh, you know, energy source of, uh, what, what element 151 was it? Uh, 115. 115, yeah. Wow, that shows you I'm not a... We're definitely not scientists. It's interesting that, you know, he talked about an energy source and a drive and so on and so forth. And also, uh, in terms of uh, you know, what basically what they're describing uh, here is you'd have to create this sort of bubble that something travels inside. And uh, an you know, interesting article by Jose Notario from 2002 um, uh, argues that crew members could not control, steer, or stop a ship in a warp bubble because the ship could not send signals to the front of the bubble. So, uh, and another guy, Carlos Barcelos in 2009, um, oh, and also a couple other guys, uh, Stefan Fanazzi and Stefano Liberti, use a quantum theory to argue that the Alcubierre drive at faster than light velocities is impossible, mostly because extra, extremely high temperatures caused by Hawking radiation would destroy anything inside the bubble at superluminal velocities and destabilize the bubble itself. The article also argues that these problems are absent if the bubble velocity is subluminal, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Although the drive still requires exotic energy, I think this is interesting. Going back to uh, Loeb's hypothesis that this could have been a uh, uh, an unmanned satellite. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, not, excuse me, not unmanned, an unmanned drone. Right. Like, which is also very interesting, right? Well, it, it brings up a couple things for me. Number one, again, we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know how our understanding of physics may change, and there may be a way to counteract those problems, number one. Number two, and excuse me while I get a little woo here, there is a big theory that greys are drones, mm, that mm-hmm. they're mechanical beings, they're not living things, so I don't know. No, well, so that, but that's great, though. I mean, think about it. Uh, from a, a empirical perspective, if me and you were scientists. Okay, so today, we've done an episode on Mukele Mbembe, right? Right. The, the dinosaur in the Congo somewhere. If we were to, if we were the scientists that said, okay, this is legit, right? Would we really be the ones tra- trekking out there? Or if we had the ability to send out a drone to do aerial footage, wouldn't we do that? Right. Right? If we had the money and the resources and the time. Well, not only that, you know, that thing might be dangerous to us. Yeah. And if you are some off-world intelligence looking at humanity, would you think we might be dangerous? Sure. I mean, we're oh, pretty absolutely. dangerous to ourselves. Yeah. Or what if we're dangerous to them? Right. Right? Like, what if, I mean, look at the 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 introduction of novel disease to uh, the, the Americas when, right. you know, the various explorers came. What if even our physical introduction into that environment, whether it's us into the Congo or realistically that, that it would kill us before we killed that, you know, whatever. Right. The environment, I mean. But what if introducing new microorganisms that we're carrying to a now uh, scientific, po- you know, a scientific study population would then change the variables and then what we're picking up is just altered data why do we why do when nasa's develop i don't know i'm sure everyone has seen like documentaries or whatever when they're developing spacecraft everyone's in like a full suit like mm-hmm. a um it's not like a type a like hazmat suit but it's like you know like a head-to-toe cover that try the goal is to cover everything because you're not trying to introduce crap into the environment into the environment um to the study environment that then we pick up with the stuff that we, you know, we have the sensors to pick up and then we end up contaminating the, the, the study area and getting false positive results. Right. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's even in the scientific community, this is a, an accepted theory. You know, there's quarantine procedures when astronauts come back, you know, especially when they came back from the moon and they brought back rocks and stuff like that. And, you know, there's the idea of panspermia, which is not, I wouldn't say it's like a a majorly realistically accepted theory, but it's not, you know, total woo either. You know, the idea that life came from asteroids from somewhere else that impacted the Earth or meteorites, I guess I should say. You know, we've we've found potential fossils of microbes in meteorites before, Mm -hmm. so it's a totally realistic fear that there are microbes out there that we could introduce to somebody else or that they could introduce to us that would be lethal for us sure and i wonder if you know if we're talking if we're going to go down the route that there's an actual interstellar civilization out there there's probably nothing that we have disease wise that they couldn't fix if it got exposed to them would be my guess but it is possible that they may have something that they could introduce to us that would Mm -hmm. be lethal to us and they may not want to introduce that because they may not want to fix it you sure. know you know and, and honestly like i, I think I, I mean i definitely agree with you there but uh oh, just as a side note all right this is gonna be sound to you so okay like in video games like rpgs where you have skill trees right right what if they've only developed up one skill tree Completely really really possible. far right and then whatever pathogen we introduce is like you need even level five of the other skill tree but since they didn't do it they're 
you know, susceptible. You know, that's that's a really good point. And I've heard that idea, too, that, you know, other civilizations out there may not have been around as long as we have, but they may just be more advanced in one specific area Mm -hmm. and they're able to fly around in spaceships. Whereas, you know, they they may still be using leeches and bleeding to manage illness, you know, kind of cosmic leeches. Yeah, cosmic leeches. Kind of terrifying. That sounds like a cool name for a side podcast for us. Cosmic Leeches. Cosmic. Or band. Oh, yeah. That could be a good Trademark. name. Trademarking yes. that. Yep. That's ours. <laughs> I had a really interesting thought. I had a question to ask you. Okay. Uh, I have an answer. If only I could remember what it was. Okay. Have you thought about... So, I think it's... I think it's, like, established that there used to be, like, water on Mars, right? And water used to be, like, Earth. Mm -hmm. Is that true? I definitely established that there was water. I mean, there's ice there now. Yeah, yeah. You know, we know know there's the, you know, the canals and the Mm -hmm. um, dried lake So, there's, like, flowing water. Yeah, there's definitely flowing water. I wonder if the accepted theory is there used to be, like, conditions similar to Earth on Mars. You know, people don't like to, you know, mainstream scientists don't like to speculate about stuff like that, but... You know, they they always also say that well there's no life without water and if there's water there's life so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think well I think water in liquid form water in liquid form right yeah, yeah. I th- I think what we're gonna find you know as we continue to send rovers and hopefully one day man mission is I think I think we're gonna find evidence that there was life there at one sure. point you know sure yeah. Because what, what I'm thinking is, even if it's like a little soup of bacteria, yeah. If an if a massive asteroid like, and I don't even know if this is realistic, dude. Like, I think it, it's not like Earth and Mars are lined up, right? They were in 3D space, but like, what if an asteroid was like a or a a group a massive group of asteroids were to you know kind of skim off bacterial life off of Mars, and that was how seeding happened on Earth. Some people believe that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Some people believe that's where life started and that it was uh, transferred here. What I also find interesting is, kind of going back to my biology roots, where does the initial spark occur, right? And I know that's also a religious conversation. (laughs) And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, like, just from an organic standpoint, right? Like, you have, like, what happened that, like, we got mitochondria that has its own, what, uh, DNA, right, or RNA, Maternal mm-hmm. RNA, I think. Which, uh, there's been theories that those are, uh, at some point, that in an evolutionary standpoint, and my, my, my evolutionary biology professor would be disappointed in me for not remembering this, but there was a, um, a engulfing of one organism by, uh, by another organism that then uh, somehow was able to uh, incorporate DNA and become one organism. Yeah. So, that would be very interesting. But how do... I, I wonder... I know we're really reaching far here, but if we were to get some sort of viable sample and we compared it to the uh, DNA of fo- of stuff here, I wonder if we could meet, Matt, find it on a phylogenetic tree. That would be very interesting. You know, I wonder. I wonder if it has the same you know gene sequences. You know, yeah, the, yeah, you know, exactly. It, Adenine, guanine, cytosine, tyrosine. Yeah, man. It. It may. I, and if it does, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, because yeah. if it's truly alien, you is it is are those the sequences that are required for all life everywhere? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. are we closely related to whatever was on Mars? Well it's interesting because you're still uh in, in our watch your coffee. 
Oh, uh, it's, it's yeah. empty. Oh, okay. Um, uracil is an RNA, ribon, uh, you know, so deoxyribonucleic acid, right? So an RNA is just ribonucleic acid. It, tyrosine is replaced by uracil, right? Which is uh, it's just another base that you don't see tyrosine, you see uracil. I wonder if that, what if we saw things like that? That, that would be really interesting. What mm-hmm. if the tree we have is just too young? What if we have to add something else? Wouldn't that be kind of interesting? Yeah. Like, I, I, I just find that to be very fascinating. Well, and what about, you know, two things I want to bring up now. You know, what about the possibility of silicone-based life forms? Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's theoretical, but it's possible. Yeah. And then you also have the, oh, I believe it's Venus, uh, the gases in the atmosphere of Venus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, in terms the, of potentially being life. Potentially life. Yeah. Um, um, harboring. Yeah, because there, there's a certain gas that is in Venus's atmosphere. Look, look that up. Make sure I'm, I think it is Venus. Um, I'm totally okay with being this ep- this podcast, uh, Jamie. <laughs> so there's uh, this gas in the atmosphere of Venus that uh, I believe it's phosphine. And at the levels it's at, it's indicative that there's some sort of life form giving that off, probably microbial. Interesting. And the interesting thing about that is there has long been a theory that there is a level in Venus's atmosphere where it would be possible for life to exist uh not human life but you know microbial life could exist in part of venus's atmosphere so. i'm very proud of your recollection because uh <laughs> this isn't just some you know foo-foo local uh source mit news on campus and around the world uh, this is written by jennifer chu mit news office september 14th 2020 astronomer astronomers may have found a signature of life on venus evidence indicates phosphine a gas associated with living organisms is present in the habitable region of venus's atmosphere this would be like a gas planet like yeah. uh, oh man Cloud Bespin. City. Yes. Yes. Uh, the search for life beyond Earth has largely revolved around our rocky red neighbor, Na- uh, Mars. NASA has launched multiple rovers over the years with a new one currently en route to sift through our Mars' dusty surface for signs of water and other hints of habitability. I don't like that word. Now, in a surprising twist, scientists at MIT Cardiff University, which wasn't that where the... Wasn't Cardiff where the other... I'll have to look that up later. And elsewhere have observed what may be signs of life in the clouds of our other, even closer planetary neighbor, Venus. While they have not found direct evidence of living organisms there, if their observation is indeed associated with life, it must be some sort of aerial life form in Venus's clouds. The only habitable portion of what is otherwise a scorched and inhospitable world. Their discovery and analysis is published today in the journal Nature Astronomy. Which, by the way, folks, nature is like a legit, right? very legit uh, journal. Like, I feel like if a if an academic gets pr- published in Nature, I think that's like a Super Bowl. Yeah. Right? I mean, I imagine. I would think. Like, I mean, uh, I mean, not to, not to uh, shit on pre-hospital emergency care, <laughs> which is a legit journal, but it's not nature. Right. The astronomers, led by Jane Greaves of Cardin Univers- Cardiff University, detected in Venus's atmosphere a spectral fingerprint. I like that. Yes. Or a light-based signature of phosphine. MIT scientists have previously shown that if this stinky poisonous gas was ever detected on a rocky terrestrial planet, it could only be produced by a living organism there. The researcher, the researchers made the detection using a variety of telescopes. Um, the MIT team followed up the new observation with an exhaustive analysis to see whether anything other than life could have produced phosphine in Venus's harsh sulfuric environment. 
Based on the many scenarios they considered, the team concludes that there is no explanation for the phosphine detected in Venus's clouds other than the presence of life. I will say these uh, that exhaustive analysis process is very thorough just from my anecdotal experience because when someone publishes something, you have peer reviewers that mm-hmm. know no, nothing about who wrote it that are just trying to poke holes. That's right. the whole point of peer review. So I think we can, you know, at least to a point, trust that. What I think is very interesting about this, whether we're talking about phosphine and Venus or the idea that there may be liquid water underground on Mars where there's life, is that these theories are not being laughed off. Mm -hmm. Um, They may not be fully embraced by everybody in academia, although this Venus thing certainly sounds like it's been pretty thoroughly vetted. It seems like there's becoming almost an expectation that not only is there life out there, but that it's probably closer than we ever thought. Sure. And we're not talking about necessarily an advanced civilization or anything, but how cool would it be to find a fungus on Mars or a, a bacteria on Venus? You know, just that just tells you that if, if we can find life in these desolate places, it's probably everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what is it, Europa? the the moon of jupiter that mm-hmm. they believe is uh it's iced over but they think it's all liquid water underneath mm. you know mm. there may be life there yeah you know there's there's a lot of possibilities out there within our own solar system our own neighborhood so imagine in this gigantic galaxy in this yeah. unfathomable universe what could be out there yeah you know there's there's somebody out there somewhere yeah yeah will we ever be able to talk to them i don't know but yeah. Maybe they send a muamua, you know? It's possible. What is the hypothesis that says, like, mathematically, oh, man, what is it? I know it? exactly what you're talking about. It, it's a mathematical equation that tells you, and it's probably antiquated now because yeah. we found so much. Um, because at the time it, it was made, it assumed uh, that there were very few planets around stars and now what we know is that there are many planets around or at least some planets around most stars Mm -hmm. and many of them are rocky yeah so it's probably antiquated now Mm -hmm. but it did predict a lot of life i wish i could remember the name of it it's on the tip of my tongue and i just can't yeah yeah it's interesting i just want to read this little quote here um we were talking about mars uh however um Talking about Venus here, uh, Sousa Silva, I believe, I don't know who it is, probably one of the, I haven't fully read this article, but it says, uh, uh, Sousa Silva says, uh, a long time ago, Venus is thought to have o- is thought to have oceans and was probably habitable just like Earth. Hmm. Uh, as Venus became less hospitable, life would have had to adapt and they could now be in this narrow envelope of the atmosphere where they can still survive. This could show that even a planet at the edge of the habitable zone could have atmosphere with a local aerial local aerial aerial habitable envelope uh what does that envelope mean uh, excuse me one second let me just uh, bring it up here uh so and i, I know we're kind of getting into the weeds here but just let me finish this one thing so um uh, venus is often referred to as earth twin as the neighboring planets are similar in their size mass and rocky composition they also have significant atmospheres although that is where their similarities end where Earth is a habitable world of temperate oceans and lakes, Venus's surface is a boiling hot landscape with temperatures reaching 900 degrees Fahrenheit in a stifling air that is drier than the driest places on Earth. Much of the planet's atm- atmosphere is also quite inhospitable, suffused with thick clouds of sulfuric acid and cloud droplets that are billions of times more acidic than the most acidic environment on Earth. The atmosphere also lacks nutrients that exist in abundance on a planet's surface. 
Uh, there is, however, a narrow temperate band within Venus's atmosphere between 48 and 60 kilometers above the surface where temperatures range from 30 to 20 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists have speculated with much controversy that if life exists on Venus, this layer of the atmosphere or cloud deck is likely the only place where it could survive. And it just so happens that this cloud deck is where the team observes signals of phosphine. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, I just find this to be so interesting. Venus has always been. I, I, so I remember middle of the night when I was really young. I was watching something on uh, MPT, and it was a scientist. It was a scientist talking about how there's dinosaurs on Venus, and I was like, at that point, I was like, oh wow, this this is a scientist saying. Obviously, now we know that that's bullshit, right? Uh, but uh, on the surface, at least. But like, I just find this to be so interesting. Mm-hmm. I really think that it it really threatens the folks that think of humans as the center of the universe to then think that. It's like a it's like a set of simple stuff. You get a soup of stuff and you mm-hmm. get life. I think people really have an issue with that. They do. They definitely do. And uh, I think it challenges a lot of people's beliefs, in my opinion, unnecessarily. But like I said, we're not going to get into a religious conversation. Sure, 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 sure. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting because if you go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, we talked about Fort a little bit on our episode last week or a couple weeks ago. And uh, one of the things people actually believed when they first started looking at Mars with telescopes is that there were cities on Mars and there Mm -hmm. were people on Mars. They saw the canals and they believed that meant there there was life, like intelligent life. And people thought the same about Venus, that there there were people on Venus. And that didn't cause the destruction of society. Mm -hmm. You know, society didn't collapse. Religious institutions didn't collapse. I'm not saying everybody believed it, but Mm. there were people that believed that, and the idea was out there. So, you know, I I don't think this stuff has to challenge these institutions in any particular way. I mean, it can. I, I guess it depends how literally and narrowly you interpret things, but I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it invalidates anything for anybody if you don't choose it to. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I just wanted to go back to, for our listeners, uh, why we suggested silicon-based life was reasonable. So, in the periodic table, uh, carbon uh, is in the second row. The The reason carbon-based life is so, uh, you know, so prevalent is because it only has, you know, the four valence electrons, right? So, it, it has the ability to join with a lot of different stuff, and it can make a lot of, uh, you know, various different connections so it's a good base molecule good base element silicon is in the next row beneath it which is why people you know say um uh you know there could be uh you know some sort of life form that is based off silicon Uh, again not scientists don't don't rip me apart here i just want to read from a a brief article from uh nbc news uh silicon-based life may be more than just science fiction this is uh uh, scientists, scientists are showing that nature can evolve to incorporate silicon into carbon-based molecules, the building blocks of life on Earth. This is by Charles Choi, uh, Space.com. Science fiction has long imagined alien worlds inhabited by silicon-based life, such as the rock-eating hoarder from the original Star Trek series. Now scientists have, for the first time, shown that nature can involve, evolve to incorporate silicon into carbon-based molecules, the building blocks of life on Earth. As for, let's see here, uh, there's a, one part that I want to... Uh, here we go. Carbon and silicon are chemically very similar in that silicon a- uh, atoms can also each form bonds with up to four other atoms simultaneously, like I was saying. Moreover, silicon is one of the most common elements in the universe. For example, 
example, silicon makes up of almost 30% of the mass of the Earth's crust and is roughly 150 times more abundant than carbon in the Earth's crust. Uh, scientists have long shown that uh, life on Earth is capable of chemically manipulating silicon. For instance, microscopic particles of silicon dioxide called uh, phytoliths can be found in grasses and other plants. And photosynthetic algae, known as diatoms, incorporate silicon dioxide into their skeletons. Um, however, and this is a very key important however, there are no known natural instances of life on Earth combining silicon and carbon together into molecules yet. Still, and this is the point, uh, chemists, have, uh, chem- uh, chemists have artificially synthesized molecules comprised of both silicon and carbon. These organosilicon compounds are found in a wider range of products, including pharmaceuticals, blah, 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 all that. The researchers here steered microbes into creating molecules never be- before seen in nature through a strategy known as directed evolution, which Arnold pioneered, oh, this guy, scientists, pioneered in the early 1990s, just as farm- farmers have long modified crops and livestock by breeding generations of organisms for the traits they want to appear, so to have scientists bred microbes to treat uh, to create the molecules they desire. I think that's huge because what, I mean, if you think of like evolution on Earth, it's just one long like continued petri dish of stuff evolving Mm -hmm. right uh so i i find that to be very interesting and i just wanted to provide that perspective for our listeners who may not be you know uh chemistry based fair enough yeah i want to go back to um and if there's something you want to bring up feel free i i know i kind of just have haven't stopped talking but um i do want to talk about the recent ufo stuff okay do you want to do that on this episode or do you want to make that its own thing oh i don't know you're the boss Let's make that its own thing. Sure, that's fine. What did we talk about? <laughs> we started off with the warp drive, and then we moved into uh, all these different possibilities oh, yeah. I of I do have life. a couple more things about this warp drive. Yeah, let's talk about the warp drive. Yeah, and then I, I guess we can finish it out. The one thing that I found really interesting was uh, there's a group of scientists that were talking about the damaging effect this could have, like if you use the Alcubierre drive, on your destination. <laughs> really? And it's pretty interesting. So these group of dudes, Brendan McMonagall, Mc- 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 Garrett F. Lewis and Philip O'Bine have argued that where an Alcubierre drive oh, that were an Alcubierre driven ship to decelerate from superluminal speed, the particles that its bubble had gathered in transit would be released in ener- energetic outbursts akin to the infinity blue shifted radiation hypothesized to occur at the inner event horizon of a black hole. Wow. <laughs> Forward facing particles would thereby be energetic enough to destroy anything at the destination directly in front of the ship. What they're not seeing is the amount, like what area gets destroyed. What if we cur- you destroy like five light years worth right. of crap? That's a bad day. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because one of the things I wanted to ask would be, what if a ship at warp speed hit a solid object or the warp bu- bubble hit a solid object? Yeah. You just answered that. Yeah. Apparently, it would carry it yeah. and launch it like a, a warp missile. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, like, uh, you know, when when Han tells, uh, you know, Chewie to, you know, plot a course, mm-hmm. right? I, I imagine it's like one of the, and they show it in the recent, one of the, the Solo mm-hmm. movie. I think they show it on a map. I mean, I don't know why I'm thinking, but like, it's like a series the hyperspace of, route. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, that's basically what you're doing. You're trying to map out so you don't hit something. Right. Right. And then the one last thing I want to say is uh, the here it says the amount of negative energy required for such a propulsion is not yet known. 
Fanning and uh, Alan Everett of Tufts hold that a Tufts I think is a school hold that a warp bubble traveling at ten times the speed of light must have a wall thickness of no more than ten to the negative thirty second meters, so super thin, close to the limiting Planck length. In Alcubierre's original calculations, a bubble macrosco- macroscopically large enough to enclose a ship of two hundred meters would require a total amount of exotic matter greater than the mass of the observable universe. Yes, <laughs> and, and straining the exact uh, the exact matter to an extreme thin band of ten and negative 30 second meters is considered impractical. Similar constraints apply to Krashnikov's superluminals. I don't know what that is. Uh, I think that's an episode for another day. Chris Van Den Brock constructed a modification of Alcubierre's model that requires much less exotic matter but places a ship in a curved space-time bottle whose neck is about 10 to negative 30 second meters. I think all this creative stuff is crazy. Like The fact that we're even having a conversation about this blows my mind. I mean, think about it, dude. A hundred years ago, 1922. We were just done with World War One. Yep. We had a massive epidemic. We hadn't even... I mean, I think people were starting to think about rockets, right? Right? With, like, the Nazis and I, stuff. Maybe the 20s, or was that the 30s? I don't they, know. They they got developed more in the, in the end of the late 40s. Sure. Was when we started seeing... They were probably theoretical in the 30s. Yeah. I couldn't tell you exactly when rocket research started. But, yeah. no, we, we definitely had the theory of rockets, because if you remember that early film where they shoot the rocket into the moon's eye... Oh, interesting. You know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. the theory was out there. Yeah. Um. But, I mean, we had just started aviation, you know, a decade and a half before. Yeah, December you know? 17th, 1903. So, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's really the pace of technology is absolutely yeah. amazing in the past yeah. 100, 150 years. You know, it, it's been just accelerating so far beyond anything that's yeah. happened before in history. You know, we, we've gone from, you know, 100 years ago where we... You know, like you mentioned, the the uh, the Spanish influenza epidemic, and we had just started to understand things like, you know, germ theory and stuff. You know, and now we're genetically modifying organisms to create God knows what. You know, we can we can create vaccines in a period of six months. You know, mm-hmm. based yeah. off RNA manipulation. You yeah. know, it's it's absolutely crazy. So. Where are we going to be in a hundred years? You know, who it's not going to be recognizable. I think. I mean, I would argue that if if you were to put someone from 1922 here, they wouldn't be like, they'd be like, "What is this square thing in your pocket that oh, yeah. everyone stares at?" Well, I bet if you took somebody from 1922 and put them in today and asked them what year they thought it was, they wouldn't say it's a hundred years later. They'd probably say it's. Two, three, four, five hundred years later. And then they would die from whatever disease they caught that they don't have immunity to. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's it, it mind blowing. Mind yeah. blowing that we can have these conversations. I, I, uh, I guess it, well, I guess we could title this Al Kibiri Drive, but we didn't. Most of the time, we didn't talk about it. Well, I figured we'd call it Warp Drives and yeah, life and life, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. You know, extraterrestrial life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I just, I, I, it's so interesting. Um, there was something else I wanted to say before we finish ah going back to the venus thing yes we uh we have organisms on earth that live in very undesirable i wanted to bring this up yes i'm glad you did uh, like uh like uh chemolithotrophs and uh, uh yeah th- there's we know that there are uh, there's life that lives in otherwise undesirable 
uh, uh, areas. And not just single-cell life forms. I mean, there are more complex organisms like worms that live in these volcanic vents in the ocean uh-huh. or under the Antarctic ice. You know, we have found somewhat complex life in, in these areas. Sure. So it's entirely possible that bacteria, you know, we know bacteria can live in the harshest conditions. Yeah, listen um, to this. The term chemolithotroph literally means rock eaters and is used to designate organisms that generate energy by the oxidation of inorganic molecules for biosynthesis or energy conservation via aerobic or anaerobic respiration. For our listeners that don't, you know, may not have aerobic respiration is what we go through, right? Regular human people, anaerobic, so it's either oxygen or non-oxygen, right? Um, uh, chemolithic, uh, chemolithotroph chemolithotrophic microbial mats on subsurface rocks. Uh, chemolithotrophs are a group of phylogenetically diverse microbes that can obtain all the energy required for their growth from the oxidation of inorganic compounds such as hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, and reduced metals. This is written by uh, Rubia Dar et al. Uh, in Freshwater Microbiology 2019. Although chemolithotrophs have a lower growth yield compared to the phototrophs, so photo meaning the you know light, uh, the conditions that facilitate their growth, including gradational interfa- interfaces between electron acceptors and reduced inorganic compounds, result in a higher growth and help them to take the form of microbial mats. I, I think, I mean, it, it, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Yeah. Life finds a way. Life finds a way. Oh, man. What was his name in the movie? Oh, man. The Chaos Theory guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, not Alan Grant. That's the paleontologist. Yeah. Uh, Ian Malcolm. Ian Malcolm. That's him. Dr. Malcolm. Yep. God, love that movie. All right. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what what we have tonight, folks. So thank you for listening to Spectral Phenomena. Please leave us a like, a rating, a review. Follow us. It's the most important stuff you can do to help us out, help people find us. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. The Twitter is a little more active than the Facebook page. Website coming soon. Have a safe day, everybody. Thank you, and have a good night.